Hey, while they're getting things ready, if you turn to Isaiah chapter 50, we're going to read one verse. And today's going to be a little bit different type of message than what Joshua and Aaron normally preach. Uh, normally, I'm sure they preach exegetically through books of the Bible. Today's message is going to be topical because Josh has asked me to preach on doubt. And the title of the message, if you have, want to write a title down, is Trusting God in the Darkness. Trusting God in the Darkness. Now, I wish I was talking on joy today. I'd rather preach on joy when we get to heaven, the only topic is going to be joy, but we aren't in heaven yet, so we have to talk about dark times. And the other reason I do want to say it's, it's going to be a message that's going to talk a lot about dark time, times. The Christian life is not merely about dark times. Uh, there is much joy in the Christian life. If you're a new Christian, there is much joy in the Christian life. We live in the now, but not yet. We live in the age where, where Christ is saving His people, but He hasn't taken us out of the world, and the world's a dark place. So we're going to talk particularly about that today, but I don't want us to walk in fear. I don't want us to walk uh, concerned that is this all that the Christian life is. It is not at all. But if you're going to build a ship, you build it for the rough waters, right? You don't build it for the calm waters. We want to build it for the rough waters. And so that's what I'm hoping to do today. So let's read together Isaiah 50, verse 10. The verse says this, Who among you fears the Lord? And obeys the voice of his servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let's read that again. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness, because there are dark times in this world, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So today we're going to talk about battling spiritual doubt, and as I said, by necessity, it's going to be a topical message. It's going to include autobiographical elements, so I hope that will serve you as I share a little bit about my life and how this message came to be. We know that doubt can have many causes, um, but I want to doubt today, I want to address today doubt is, that is produced by or as a result of intense, prolonged trials. That specific type of, type of doubt that comes out of intense, prolonged trials. And I'm sure in a group this size that some of you have faced intense trials. I'm sure that some of you have gotten through those trials probably in exemplary fashion that we can all learn from. And I'm also aware that by addressing this message today, it's a huge message. It's a huge topic, and not everything can be said in one message about this topic. So I hope it will serve you, I think, Josh has some books that were really helpful for me. He can get those resources to you. You'll hear a lot of quotes today from these books. And again, we're going to be looking at a, just a, a spattering of Bible verses. So it's not going to be just focusing on Isaiah chapter 50. For the Christian, biblical faith ultimately comes down to two fundamental issues. Just two issues. And they are these. Number one, is there a God? Is there a God? If I'm going to have faith, I need to know, is there a God? Is there a sovereign God who rules this world? That's the first issue. And the second question, if we're going to have biblical faith, is this. We have to answer in the, in the affirmative is this. Is that God trustworthy? Can I trust this God? Is he thoroughly good and personally involved in, a, in the world in such a way that I can trust him completely with my life? So Hebrews 1.6 says it this way. Without faith, is it, impossible? it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must, number one, believe that He exists. Is there a God, right? Must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder 
of those who earnestly seek him. And that's, is he good? Is he God? Is there a God? And is he good? The existence of a sovereign God and the goodness of God are the two foundations for a vital living faith. Now, let me share with you my personal struggle with doubt a few years ago. It lasted for a few years. And here's the thing about doubt and faith. You cannot fake faith, and you cannot ignore doubt. You either trust God or you don't. And it can be degrees of that, but you can't fake it. You, you, do I really trust Him? Well, let me tell you a little bit about my life that caused this to be an, an issue in my life after being a Christian for a number of years, by the way. Here are the issues. Uh, two of the situations I faced have been chronic. Uh, there are two events, um, and then they... They ended up with a particular event that I will share as well. Number one, a chronic ongoing issue in my life was I'm a father of four daughters and one son. Two daughters and one son are married. My youngest two daughters are not married. I watched them go through their 20s and now in their 30s, still not married. And they desire to be married. And they both love the Lord. They follow the Lord in their life as Christian girls through their teenage years, through their 20s. And they still aren't married. And that has been challenging for me as her dad. Okay? The second issue was a long season of deaths and funerals. I'm a pastor of a small town, so I know the people that I do the funerals for. There was a long season of deaths and funerals. There were nine funerals in 16 months that I led. They were all for family and friends, and they included one two-week period where my dad and two of my first cousins died. All in two weeks. So I'm doing a funeral. I'm going to the hospital for another. And that was all in two weeks. And except for my dad, who was 91, a godly man, almost everyone else died earlier in life. Some not super young. So I don't think you think, make you think teens or 20s. But they died young, and some of them in very tragic manners. And so that period and that season of, of funerals was just was challenging for me. The combination, however, was the suffering that my sister, one of my sisters, experienced uh, after the death of her 26-year-old son. She was told the news at midnight on Christmas Eve 2018. The timing and the manner by which she was told was simply horrible, and it was not the first heartbreaking situation she's experienced in her life. And here's the issue. And this isn't just my opinion. She is one of the most godly, kind, and gentle women that I know. She has followed the Lord from a young age, and she has not veered in her life. And she prayed faithfully for her children. And finding out Christmas morning at noon, because they waited to tell us at noon, getting that phone call, and seeing her as a Christian who loved the Lord and faithfully serving the Lord and has for years, experienced that experienced that in her life was challenging to me. has been a challenging thing to me. It's still very sad. Here's the reality. Suffering and darkness come unannounced into our lives. Some suffering is acute and instantaneous. Others is chronic and drawn out. We have, and, and, and Aaron prayed for some of these. We experience sickness and death and loss. There are family trials. There are children who drift from the faith. There are unfulfilled hopes and dreams and seemingly unanswered prayers. There's a lot of young people in here. You're going to say, this doesn't really apply to me. If you live long enough, you will suffer in a fallen world. Okay? So you catalog this message 
if you haven't suffered yet. That's fine. But unfulfilled hopes and dreams, seemingly unanswered prayers, the cumulative effects of setbacks, betrayals, disappointments, all take their toll on our faith in this world. Yet the verse says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Now the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that in those times? How do we trust in the name of the Lord when walking in darkness and not experiencing light? How can we trust in a God who is sovereign and good when the evidence in our life at the moment communicates the exact opposite? That's the issue, isn't it? How do we trust Him and hold on to faith in the darkness? So we're going to look at three, we're going to look at this topic under three main headings this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. We're going to look at that. In a fallen world, the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. We're going to look at doubt as a suspension between faith and unbelief. And then we're going to look at trusting in the name of the Lord in the darkness. So let's pray. I want to pray before we start. Just ask God to help me. We've prayed a lot already this morning, but I just recognize my need for God's help. So could we bow our heads? Father, I'm aware of my need to speak clearly your truths, and I'm aware there are people that came this morning probably because they're experiencing doubt and they're having suffering in their lives right now. Jesus, you can alone can meet all of us where we're at, and I pray that you'll do that as I speak your words. Help me to speak clearly and help us all to have ears to hear. For Lord, in the storms of life, we don't want to be shipwrecked. We want to stand firm in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's look at the stark reality of inexplicable suffering. That's quite a title in it. The stark reality of inexplicable suffering. In spite of many joys and blessings, and there are many joys and blessings in life, our world is a pretty dark place at times. I think we all know that. And we know the reason for it. From a 10,000-foot level in the garden, Adam and Eve rebelled. Adam sinned. Sin came, up in, came into the world, and there's been suffering and death and injustice ever since that time. And so part of the biblical care in the church is caring for one another through those trials because we're going to experience it. So we provide comfort and care to those who need it. We gather data and diagnose if someone's suffering. We try to find out, oh, is there is there a cause? Sometimes sin is the cause of suffering. So we teach about reaping and sowing and we hope for repentance when it's a result of sin and we can make a direct connection and we've got to be able to make sure it's a direct connection. It's clear. We remind people that suffering, even in times of suffering, God can use that for, his, for our good, the discipline for our discipline us for our good, that we might share in His holiness, is what Hebrews 12 says. So we know that there's, God can use suffering in our lives. We also discern links and share promises to people. We share promises. We let them know this suffering, this suffering is for a moment. It won't last forever. So we share the promises of God. But here's the question. What about the suffering that has no clear reason or purpose? What about that kind of suffering? What about that suffering that has no clear reason or purpose? What about intense pain that seems both inexplicable and fruitless? That's what Job faced, and that was the reality that he and his friends had to try to figure it out. What's going on in Job's life? Let me read verse verse of Job, the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, 
one who feared God and turned away from evil. The writer wants to make sure you know that right off the bat, because when all this stuff that's going to happen to Job, you are going to be, I, I can't believe this. You got to remember, that's who this man was. But Job suffered greatly, and he nor neither he nor his, his friends were ever told why. They never knew why. You know some of the background, but they did not. And Job's friends had no category for inexplicable, unexplained suffering. For them, the world was ruled by a sovereign and just God, and suffering, including Job's, was a matter of cause and effect. If you suffered, we just need to look for the cause because you can make a direct line between cause and effect. That's what they thought about suffering. Eric Ortland called it the retribution principle in his book. We reap what we sow. That was their category. And with that one trick category for suffering, their words became nothing but thrusting swords and accusations. And for the, all their dialogue in the book of Job is trying to tell Job, here's why you're suffering. If you just repent, if you just come clean, your suffering will stop. And that merely increased the suffering for Job. We tend to do that too when we see people suffering. We want to make a connection. Why did they suffer? We want to find that connection. These guys, they must find the reason for Job's, Job's suffering in Job because Job's suffering, like to us, is a threat to them. It's a threat. Job's suffering is a threat. Their whole worldview is at stake because if God allows suffering in Job's life without cause or clear explanation, that meant what happened to Job might happen to them. And then how could they believe in such a God who doesn't treat people as they deserve? How you doing today, Job? Let me tell you how you're doing, Job. Better than you deserve. And that was a lie. He wasn't doing better than he deserved at that time. You see, Job's friends have grasped that unless God is just and fair, their moral fabric of the universe will disintegrate. If God is not just, if he's not good and he's not God, then what kind of a world is it? And we all struggle, we all face the same struggle. We often try to lessen our pain by trying to always figure out the immediate connection between our suffering and its cause. We want to find that immediate cause. And sometimes there is. But sometimes there's not. Sometimes there's not. My girls, not married. Maybe if I'd have parented them differently. Maybe if I'd have done this differently. Maybe if I'd have encouraged them to be more forward. Maybe this, maybe that. Always trying to find a connection. We can drive ourselves crazy trying to do that. In the book Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, the writer writes this. Upon returning to the churches in the United States after her husband's death, and you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot, her husband Jim Elliot was killed in South America very young man. She had a two-year-old daughter, 18-month-old daughter at that time. Here's the writing of that book on becoming Elizabeth Elliot. Upon returning to the churches in the United States after her husband's death, Elizabeth Elliot detested the shallow God-justifying platitudes of many who sought to comfort her in her suffering. Their answers, like the answers of Job's friends, were a means to prop up and protect their own flimsy faith that couldn't stand the test of inexplicable suffering. 
Because if this abhorrent suffering could happen to her for no apparent reason, it could happen to them. So they were trying to figure out, why did God allow this to happen? Because if they couldn't explain it, maybe it would happen to them too. Christopher Ash writes in his book, we need to be honest and face the kind of world we live in. Why does God allow these things? Why does he do nothing to put these things right? And why, on the other hand, do people who could care less about God and justice thrive? Why? Why is this? We need to be honest. This is the world we seem to live in at times. Elizabeth Elliot wrote about suffering this way and the inexplicableness of suffering at times. She says, I like this. You just wrote, I've read somewhere that anyone who is not confused is very badly informed. <laughs> I like that. Here's the truth of the matter. At times, God allows intense and inexplicable suffering in the lives of his people, and he has not told us why. He has not told us why. The suffering has nothing to do with sin. The suffering is not directly proportional to the need for spiritual growth. In other words, Job-like suffering is more common than we may think. It's more common. And that kind of suffering brings questions about God's goodness and fairness, which brings doubt into play. Maybe he's not the God we thought he was. How do I ever get past this wound that I'm experiencing? How can I ever trust you again after this? You ever experienced that? What's to keep this from happening again? It happened once. Maybe it'll happen again. Can I trust him? Suffering brings questions about God's goodness and fairness, which brings doubt into play. Jeremiah stated the reality this way. Jeremiah 12, 1, he writes, You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. You're always righteous. Every time I bring a case before you, you're always righteous. But then he writes, Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why do the ways of the wicked prosper? It's it's in Scripture. It's, It's in Scripture. So let's talk about doubt. Doubt is the suspension between faith and unbelief. And doubt, deep and prolonged suffering is uniquely challenging for us who are Christians. Uniquely challenging. We believe God is sovereign. We know everything that comes into our life must come through His hand. Not necessarily by His hand. We know that God is not the author of evil. So we know, we know James 1 is true, Right? But it must come through his hand. He must must at least allow it. The world doesn't have to deal with that knowledge. They don't have to deal with that. Christians have to deal with that. Again, Christopher Ash writes, and I do a lot of quotes from these books. I think it's helpful for us. He says, there is a pain for believers that gives suffering a unique sharpness. Suffering is the common experience of the human race, and yet suffering touches the believer with a sharper and uniquely piercing pain. The worshiper truly believes God's sovereign. He or she really believes that the living God is in control of the world. And so when suffering comes, it must be God who ultimately sends it, I would say allows it. After all, he is in control, isn't he? It is God who is in some sense doing the hurting, at least by allowing it. 
And then he writes on. And yet, surely God is just, isn't he? This is the added pain for the believer living in a world of undeserved suffering. For undeserved suffering is a threat to the moral foundation of the universe. Either God is not in control or he is not fair. And that causes the believer deep and sharp perplexity. He writes on, there are believers with a clear conscience, no hidden sin, trusting in God for forgiveness and walking in the light with him, and yet who suffer terribly. It is a problem. But it's important for us to notice that it is a problem only for the believer. It's harder for us. We believe there's a sovereign God. We believe he's good. So when there's inexplicable suffering for us, we are dealing with issues the world doesn't have to deal with. One person told me when they suffered and lost a family member, not only a Christian, not only did I lose my family member, I also lost my best friend, meaning God. I've leaned on him all in prayers and hope and promises all these years, and then this happened. I felt like I only lost this loved one felt like, like I lost my closest friend. Where was he? Another person wrote this, what makes it harder for me as a Christian is I know too much. Meaning, I know God's sovereign. He could have stopped it. This tragedy had to at least be allowed by him. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? And I promise you, we, we're, we're getting down in a dark place, but I promise you we'll come out of it. Okay, so stay with me, all right? Listen to this statement. This is in discussion with someone as well. If, if a human being had allowed what God just allowed, we would put him in jail. It's heavy stuff. So what about doubt? Well, first of all, several points. Number one, struggling with doubt is a reality living in a fallen world as we live between the resurrection and the consummation. Doubt is going to be something we're going to struggle with between, between the resurrection and the consummation. When promises have been made, but promise, not all promises have yet been fulfilled. Again, I want to tell you, in heaven, we aren't going to be talking about doubt. We've got to talk about it here. So struggling with doubt is reality. Though he slay me, yet I hope in him was spoken in chapter 3 by Job, not chapter 13, 23, or 33. He spoke it early, and then he struggled for chapters. That happens a lot of times suffering, doesn't it? Initially, we think, I'm going to stand firm, and then the waves come. It's reality. Number two, and this is important, if you don't get anything else in the message but this this morning, number two, doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is not synonymous with unbelief. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Okay? It's not the same. Jude 22, after warning against all kinds of evil, there, he's warning against all kinds of evil and evil men. He warns against blasphemous, don't have anything to do with blasphemous and divisive men. Jude then writes this, have mercy on those who doubt. Listen, if you're doubting today, God wants you to know this. He wants to have mercy on you. He is not condemning you. He wants to have mercy on you. Receive prayer. If you need prayer this morning, receive prayer. He wants to pour mercy on you. 
Number three, doubt is not sin. It is a wavering between what we believe about God, what we honestly believe about God, that is contradicted by what we are experiencing in this season of life. That's what we're struggling with. It's not sin. It's a wavering. Doubt has not come to a conclusion about God. The heart of doubt is a divided heart. Doubt has its reservations. It hangs back. Hangs back. Doubt is a suspension between faith here and unbelief here, and I'm right here. I've not come to unbelief. I, I, I'm not there, but I'm really having a hard time right now believing because of what I'm experiencing. Unlike doubt, unbelief no longer wavers. When, we're, when we no longer believe, the verdict has been decided, the debate is over, there's a willful refusal to believe in God. Unbelief is a consequence of a settled choice. It's a deliberate response against God's truth. To believe is of one mind, to disbelieve is of another. Doubt is not unbelief. And finally, though, this is important, doubt, if not dealt with honestly, will lead to unbelief. It will lead you there. Doubt is not always fatal, but it's always serious. Doubt, if not answered, will eventually lead us away from God into sin and unbelief. And here's again another quote. The special temptation to doubt and suffering comes from the fact that we feel someone should answer for the suffering, but no one's answerable. If no one's answerable, and this has been true in my life, therefore then God must answer. If I can't point to the reason, if I can't point to someone else being the cause, then it's got to be him. That's where I tend to go naturally. And then the temptation is to malign God's character. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis from a book called A Grief Observed after he lost his wife to cancer. He chronicled, he journaled about all the grief that he was struggling with. So he just did a raw journal. It's just a journal of, of what he's experiencing. He said this. He said, here's, here's the issue. It's not that I am, I think, in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is in coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. That's the temptation. Os Guinness writes in his book, God in the Dark, the temptation to doubt does not come in not believing God, but in believing what is not God. The danger is that we press judgment too far and our speculation creates such a distorted picture of God that we cannot continue to believe in good faith. That's what happens. If you doubt, you're going to start distorting God and after a while you say, why would I believe in Him if He's like that? And then he writes, believing the wrong thing is always halfway to believing nothing. Our misrepresentations of God are so pathetically inadequate or monstrously hideous that to believe in Him any longer is unnecessary or repugnant. And I've seen this as a pastor, that in the end, doubt will drive us to either distort the image of God into a monster we could never trust. Anyone would be absurd to trust in that kind of a God that we distort God into, or to shrink Him into an image of our own making, and to trust a God who doesn't really exist. They couldn't do anything about it. 
A lot of times I've seen people just make a big image of themselves. I'm trusting that God. But it's not the real God. So that's doubt. It's not sin. It's wavering. God wants to bring mercy. But it is dangerous. We must honestly address it. I think as a pastor, that's one of the hardest things to admit. You know, I'm struggling with doubt. I need to deal with it. This is doubt. Well, let's talk about darkness and trusting in the name of the Lord. Let's, how do we trust in the name of the Lord? When the kindness of the Lord, and it was the kindness of God, the significant turning point for me came when I read a quote someone posted after the tragic death of their 24-year-old daughter. And it comes from the book, God in the Dark, written by Oz Guinness. And it's a lengthy quote. I think we're posting it, I believe. Here's the quote. If not, Josh will get it to you. Here's what he wrote. Suffering is the most acute trial that faith can face. And the questions it raises are the sharpest, the most insistent, and the most damaging that faith can meet. Can faith bear the pain and still trust God? Suspending judgment and resting in the knowledge that God is there, God is good, and God knows best? Or will the pain be so great that only meaning will make it endurable so that the reason so that reason will be pressed further and further and judgments must be made. But if the Christian's faith is to be itself and let God be God at such times, it must suspend judgment and say, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. And we're going to talk about this suspending judgment. It must suspend judgment and say, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. So when necessary, this is what helped me, and I'm going to walk you through it. When necessary, we must be willing to suspend judgment of God in the face of inexplicable suffering. Remember, God helped Job. God never explained everything to Job. Okay? We must be willing to suspend judgment of God in the face of inexplicable suffering. In other words, we must reject what is truly, and I think this was posted on Facebook, we must reject keyhole theology. Well, what's keyhole theology? Well, my grandmother's house, they locked the doors with keys. You know, in bedrooms, you put the key in the, in the, in the door, and you turn the key, and you locked it that way. When you pulled the key out, you had, you all know this, right? You have a keyhole. You look through the keyhole. Younger people might not know this, but they didn't lock them the way they do today. They had a keyhole, and you had the key. But when you took the key out, you looked through the keyhole, you could see what was going on inside. Partly. People historically have been sent to prison based on what someone saw some of the hospital or the hotel help saw through a keyhole. They were charged with a crime because someone looked through the keyhole and saw what they did. Right? You can see. Keyhole theology is drawing overarching and false conclusions about a whole situation from some partial information we really do see. We really see some of the aspects of suffering. We're experiencing it. We don't have the whole picture through the keyhole, but once we've seen a little, it's difficult to resist trying to extrapolate the rest about what God is doing and why. So we're suffering, it's difficult, we want to understand why, and we look through the keyhole of our understanding, and we try to figure it out. And there's some things we see very clearly, and because we see that, we extrapolate the rest about God from what we're seeing. But it is limited. 
is what we see. We must be willing to suspend judgment, recognizing that we do not know everything as God knows. Job didn't, and neither do we in times of suffering. Our root problem often lays in the fallacy that we think we have enough information to make proper judgments in a situation. But listen to these verses of scriptures. God is not mere man that we should be like him. He's not us. He's not a mere man. Even at our best, you know these scriptures, we see dimly through a glass. His ways are infinitely higher than our ways. His thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts. So we must admit, and listen, when we see through the keyhole, we must admit that the known facts are against God. But the known facts are not all the facts. You're always only seeing through a keyhole. And I might look in the room and see some, but I am not seeing everything, ever. Now, as we do that, you're saying, well, how are we supposed to do is suspend judgment? How does that build faith? Well, I'm going to help you see that. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to understand in times of suffering. We're not putting reason. We're not putting our mind and setting it off over here on a shelf. No, we still want to try to understand as best we can. We should try to understand situations. There's, there are a number of reasons for suffering. They're not all inexplicable. As we said before, sometimes it is cause and effect. Sometimes God is using it to, that we might share in His holiness. So we aren't to, we aren't to no longer seek, not seek any longer uh, understanding. We're not trying to do that. Also, it doesn't mean that by, by suspending judgment that we are denying the emotional reality of our suffering. Well, I'm going to suspend judgment. I'm going to act like I, I'm not suffering. Well, that's, that's just a lie. That's not true. That's not going to serve you well at all. No, we, we are not to deny the emotional reality of our suffering. Denying reality of, in suffering is a mark of make-believe, not living faith. Okay? You're never going to get to faith by denying your suffering. We're going to walk in reality here. No, this is hard. There's a reason 30 to 40% of the psalms are psalms of lament. But, here's what you can learn. Tears and faith can't abide together. Tears and faith can abide together in a Christian's life, and they often do. The next point is this. Suspending judgment in, during a time of suffering is not irrational. But if we are to suspend judgment, we must know why we trust God enough to suspend judgment now. It's not irrational to say, I'm going to suspend judgment if I know I can trust God enough to suspend judgment now. And that's what we'll get to. It's irrational to say, I'm going to suspend judgment, and that's walking in, in fairy, fairyland. It's, listen, I had a wonderful father. I had a Christian father. Um, he's a wonderful man. Later on in life, I can promise you, there were times if I didn't understand, I could have said, you know what, I'm going to suspend judgment because I trust him. He's never let me down. I'll just, I don't understand what he's doing right now, but that's okay. I know him. It's not irrational to suspend, irrational suspend judgment if you know why you can trust God. Now remember with Isaiah 50.10, and that, that's where it gets to. It says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord. In this moment, I have no darkness, I have no light, but it commands us to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So how, what is it about the name of the Lord 
that we can walk in darkness and suspend judgment while we're in darkness while still trusting in the name of the Lord. We can suspend judgment in darkness because the God we trust in is not just the sovereign of the universe, but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to explain that to you. The name of the Lord, the name of our God is the God who saves. And he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're, that's who we're trusting. We're not just trusting a nebulous God out here. We're trusting as Christians a particular God who has shown every reason, has given us every reason to trust Him in the darkness. The God we serve is not merely sovereign, but the God, and you see this in the New Testament, He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because He's that God, the truth of His goodness to me is unassailable, even in the darkness. Okay? If you read back in Psalm 50, and you can look now if you want to open it, you can open your Bible back to Psalm 50. And before you get to verse 10, you're going to see about this servant who was so obedient. We'll start in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. He's talking about a servant here. That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. And listen to these words. I gave my back to those who strike. Who's that? And my cheeks to those who will pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And if you go a few chapters forward to Isaiah 53, you're going to read about that suffering servant who was crushed for our iniquities, who died for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That's the context of Psalm 50.10. Let him who walks in darkness trust in the name of the Lord, and that God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I was in sin, at a moment in time, at a time in history, years before I was born, centuries before I was born, when I was in sin, God sent his righteous servant in my place. And for everyone who's a Christian, he's done it for you too. At a point in time. Though he was guiltless, he suffered and died for me. Though suffering in life is real, his inexplicable love, inexplicable love has been shown to me once and for all. If you want to put it in a nutshell, his inexplicable love through the light of Christ trumps inexplicable suffering in the darkness. If you grasp it, our God being that God makes all the difference in the darkness. I can suspend judgment in the darkness because God has proven he is infinitely good to me in my life. And he did that while I was still far from him, when I didn't care for him, when I wasn't seeking him. He died on the cross. The Son of God died on the cross. God sent his son to die for me when I was totally in the darkness that I might come into the light forever. Suffering is real. Doubts are real. But doubts about the Father's goodness in suffering are silenced by the Son. The God that we put our trust in, we know He's good because that's what's challenged when it comes to doubt. Is He good? We know He's good because He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, to die for our sins while we are yet sinners.
One writer wrote, how can I be sure that God is there and that God is good in the dark times is answered satisfactorily only in Jesus Christ. Any proof of God's existence or argument in favor of his goodness that ends anywhere else is bound to be inconclusive or wrong. That's the answer in the darkness. Let unanswered questions about God's goodness drive you to the place where his goodness to us is most clearly displayed. Job returned to faith and joy in God even while he was in the dark, suffering because God revealed his goodness and sovereignty to him. You remember the last chapters? Listen, we have a greater revelation of God's goodness through Jesus Christ than Job ever had. God has shown us. And, and let me give you an example of keyhole theology. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was on the cross, every disciple saw that situation through the keyhole. They didn't understand it. They thought their life was over. Jesus alone saw more than a keyhole. He knew why he was going to the cross. He sweat drops of blood. And while they all ran away, Jesus remained faithful for you and for me. He remained faithful. They all denied Jesus before men. Jesus, the righteous one, did not deny us as he took our sin upon himself that we might be freed from eternal darkness and death. I don't know how dark your time is right now, but I can promise you this much. If you're in Jesus Christ, your life does not end in darkness. It ends in light and light forevermore. That is the joy of knowing Christ. Only inexplicable love in the heart of God. And it, it, it's inexplicable, isn't it? Why did he do this? Why did he save us? It's because of the inexplicable love in the heart of God. Only that inexplicable love of God in his heart explains the inexplicable suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. For me, coming to the knowledge of that love, and I was, again, I was a Christian for decades, coming to a deeper knowledge of that love has put to rest any doubts about God's goodness in the present darkness. I still don't understand why my sister lost her son at a young age. I don't understand why she has had to suffer as she has. It's still hard. But the knowledge of the love of Christ has put to death any questions about God's goodness in spite of that. Are you with me? To understand that, but I understand his love. because He's shown that to us. He's shown that to me. Our God, the God that you put your trust in, is sovereign over heaven and earth, and he is good because he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is good. A writer writes, There are facts of life in a fallen world that we will never be able to explain, but must never explain away. Folks, you can't explain away inexplicable suffering. You can't explain it. I can't explain it. It can take you through history. I cannot explain some of the suffering. We must never explain them away. Faith, however, can suspend judgment on these questions. For there is no question we cannot leave with God if he is the father of Jesus Christ. I find more and more as I'm counseling people, I just, you know what? I had one lady lost a sister-in-law to cancer. She said, I don't know. And I said, I don't know either. But you know what? I'm just learning to leave more and more of these questions at the feet of Jesus I just leave them there. That's where I put them. I don't know. And I don't just lay them anywhere. I put them at his feet. 
at the feet of Jesus. And we sing these songs and people have sung these truths for centuries. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not trust the best times of life, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, we sing that verse, don't we? What do I do? I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil beyond this world. Folks, believers have known this for centuries. Ellen Vaughn wrote in closing in the epilogue of Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, and she's reading her journals as a young girl, because Elizabeth Elliot journals from the time she's a young girl. And so Ellen Vaughn is reading her early journals about the future, so excited. And she said, turning the thin pages of Elizabeth Elliot's journals, I knew the end of that story. Because Elizabeth Elliot didn't lose one husband, she lost three husbands. She said, I knew the end of that story. The young Elizabeth writing did not know the end. I wanted to warn her, to shout across the decades, to prepare for the storm. Get ready. The hurricane is coming, she wanted to write and tell her. And then she says this, it's mercy that none of us knows what's coming. It is, isn't it? It's mercy. But listen to what Elizabeth Elliot writes, because I don't want you to live in fear of what's coming tomorrow. Listen, God has your future. He has your life in his hands, even when we don't understand it. He's got it. Listen to what Elizabeth Elliot wrote. She wrote this as an older lady going through all this suffering. She said, I belong to God. He is faithful. His words are true. And the transformation, the ultimate springtime, already planted, it's coming. I pray the Lord will meet you in your suffering. I pray that you'll be able to suspend judgment because you know that God is not only sovereign, but that you know and are convinced that he is good because at some point in time in history, he had you in mind when he died on that cross, when you were far from him. His inexplicable love caused inexplicable suffering through in his son in your place that you will, in the end of life, will never suffer again. In all eternity, I pray the Lord will minister to each of you. I'm going to let Josh come back up.